manifest that uh, Chief Justice Boatwright gave. You know, it, it was really thrilling for me to have him being able to share some of the successes and the good news during what's been a really difficult year for the branch as a whole. Um, 50% of the judges who were appointed in 2020 were people of color. And we have more black women on the bench today and in the past year than in the past 25 years combined. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Colorado Judicial Department. The Colorado Judicial Department assumes no responsibility or liability for any error or omission in the content of this podcast. Information provided in this podcast should not be considered to be legal advice and is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness or accuracy. Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The stars of today's podcast are Judge Jacqueline Brown, Court of Appeals, and Aaron Scott, Law Clerk, Court of Appeals, who are the co-chairs of the Pipeline Subcommittee of the Court of Appeals IDEA, Inclusivity, Diversity, Equity, and Anti-Racism Committee, and Sumi Lee, Head of the Judicial Diversity and Outreach at the SEAL. Today, we will be talking about the progress of the judicial diversity and outreach efforts and the Java with Judges program. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delicio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Good afternoon, Judge Brown and Aaron and Sumi. Thank you for being here today. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us. All right. Anybody, uh, and we're, we're recording here in July. I just was wondering as we get into this, did anybody get some time off here after the 4th of July weekend and recharge your batteries for the podcast? I, have- I actually went out of town before the 4th of July holiday for a little pop-up camping in the Utah desert. So, okay. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'll be taking a break after my clerkship ends at the end of the month and I'll okay. have a break. So I'm excited. Oh, all right. And how about you, Sumi? Um, I'm actually flying out to California tomorrow morning. So all right. a nice break to come. Yeah. And I'm going to Ohio next week. So we're all kind of maybe de- delaying our, our time off till a little bit after or right around the 4th of July. Well, Thanks for being here. And Sumi, I just wanted to mention that you appeared on the podcast about a year ago and you were new to the position and the pandemic had hit and and you were trying to put this program in place. And we heard a little bit about some of the challenges the pandemic uh, caused. But then uh, I wanted to do an update with you today, a little bit about where the program stands. And then you suggested we should invite Judge Brown and Aaron to talk about the work they're doing at the Court of Appeals. So I'm really excited to hear how the program's coming along statewide, some of the progress that we've been able to see, and then also hearing about what the Court of Appeals have been able to accomplish um, in, in, in the last year or so. And what I always like to do with the guests or the question I always like to ask our, 
the guests are, um, what does beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you? And so Judge Brown, how about you go first and, and tell us what that means to you? Do we all get bonus points if we say Collabo Babble correctly? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a wonderful world, word. Um, you know, I think it, to me it means, listen, we all like to, to talk about working together to effectuate change in the legal system. Um, but I think this podcast is about sort of walking the talk and who's actually taking steps toward improving the systems that control outcomes, uh, you know, in the judiciary. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. And how about you, Aaron? Well, to me, it means, you know, sharing stories of collaborative work, you know, including taking a deep dive into the motivation behind the collaboration, as well as individuals, the driving forces, like how they're working together to actually achieve their set goals. Okay. And Sumi, this is your second time on the podcast. Maybe your answer is the same, but maybe with some time since the last time we spoke, you might have a different answer. So what does it mean to you? No, I think it goes to uh, identifying ways that we can learn from each other and work together. And I think uh, one of the reasons I wanted to ask Judge Brown and Aaron to join me on the podcast today is because I think Java with Judges program is a great example of collaboration. So I'm not sure what I said last year, but I... This is what I'm going to say this year. Yeah, no, I don't remember either, but the guests or the listeners will have to check out that episode if they want to hear your previous answer. Um, yeah, the the Java with Judges uh, program that you put together, I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to observe one of those sessions. And um, and it was, it was very interesting to just see um, law students and judges on the bench and justices uh, being able to kind of interact in a in a in a open dialogue and and low low stakes conversation and, and what what I t- really took away was um, I think in the past we've brought law students uh, to the Supreme Court or to the Court of Appeals. Um, in particular from some of the juvenile law clinics and they would meet with the chief justice and some of the uh, judges on the court of appeals. But I feel like when we were in the courtroom and at the courthouse, it had a little bit more formality to it. And I liked the fact that that really they, they had some time to get to know each other on a personal level, which doesn't always happen in the formal structured meetings that we sometimes have in the courthouses. And I'm sure you're going to talk more about that process, but that was my observation. uh, And I really did enjoy that. Um, Judge Brown, would you mind giving us just a little bit of a, your story on how you reached the Court of Appeals and your judicial and legal career? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I, I, I grew up chasing tumbleweeds in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Um, my mom was a bank teller and my dad uh, did wrought iron welding. Um, I'm the first in my family to graduate from college, but my parents always um, instilled in me this belief that education could kind of take me anywhere I wanted to go. And so um, I, I've uh, invested in that heartily over the years. Um, and so after graduating from law school, I um, worked for 11 years at one law firm. It's now called Lewis Roca. Back in the day, it was Roth Gerber Johnson and Lyons and developed a complex commercial litigation practice there. I ended up becoming a partner in the litigation group um, and then had an opportunity to work on um, a, a pro bono death penalty case. I represented a, 
a man who was on death row in Texas. And one of the things that was so shocking about my work on that case was the judge involved. There, there were many problems with the case, but the judge involved ended up being indicted on multiple counts of accepting bribes for lower sentences and things of that sort. And it kind of put in, um, in put it right in front of me how intimately judges can impact uh, a person's life and how having the wrong people in those jobs um, really does such irreparable damage. Um, and, you know, all through law school, all through my practice, I sort of had de designs on becoming a judge. I feel like my, my brain just kind of works um, in the way a judge's brain works. But work on that case and seeing the involvement of that judge in that case and his impact on that case really prompted me to kind of pursue a, a judicial career earlier than I otherwise anticipated. And so I threw my hat in the ring for a district court position in the 17th Judicial District, which is Adams and Broomfield County, and fortunately was appointed uh, as a trial court judge out there. Um, and I served there for three years. But really, when I dug down deep, I um, realized my highest and best use um, in the legal field was was on the Court of Appeals. And so uh, in 2019, threw my hat into this ring and was appointed uh, June, June of 2019. So just over two years ago to the Court of Appeals. All right. Thank you. And Aaron, um, as a law clerk, as a law clerk at the Court of Appeals, can you just kind of tell us your journey into the judicial and legal field? So I'm originally from Aurora, Colorado, and I came from a single parent household. Um, I'm similar to Judge Brown, the first in my family to go to college and the first one to go to law school. Um, I don't, I'm not the typical person, I guess, if people know that they want to go to law school early on. I wasn't quite sure about that. I studied sciences for a very long time until I knew that my heart was no longer in it. Um, but after changing my degree to criminal justice, I would, I spoke to my mentor at my school and she actually convinced me to go to law school. And that is what launched me on this path now. Um, what led me to the Court of Appeals after I graduated law school, law school, which was in the University of South Dakota, I clerked at the district court out there for one year and then I came to the Court of Appeals and um, yeah, that's been my journey here. Okay. And when you say district court, was it the federal district court or was it the state of South Dakota's uh, district court? Actually, so it was the state of South Dakota's. It's the seventh um, judicial circuit. So. Okay. All right. And then Sumi Lee, how about, how about you? You want to just give us a little overview on your journey to the field of judicial and legal um, profession? Sure. So um, I am the first in my family to go to law school. Uh, I'm an immigrant from South Korea, and I began my legal career at the Colorado Judicial Department. So um, it is nice to be back in many ways. Um, I clerked at the Denver Probate Court for three and a half years and also served as a Sherlock there in the first season of that program. And, and then I was a trust and estates attorney in the private uh, field, you know, working for different banks um, before coming onto this role in 2020. So um, that's a shortened version. I think we talked about the longer version of that a little bit at our last podcast. 
Yeah. So a plug, plug to listen to that episode yeah, as well. Definitely. Definitely. And it, it just sounds like you all had a little different path and a little different uh, motivation or a different person that convinced you or experience that convinced you that this is where you want to dedicate your careers. Um, and I think that's good for the listeners within judicial and the folks who are thinking about um, diversity, inclusion, equity, and anti-racism in the courts. And so um, the more diverse and, and the, the more different perspectives we get, the more different stories we have, the, the richer our, uh, our branch of government, uh, I guess, the way we operate and the way that we meet our customers can, can become, um, you know, we can enhance what we do and we can have a more diverse uh, group of people with different backgrounds. So Sumi, um, yeah, but you 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 provide an update on all of that work because the legislature yeah. passed okay. uh, uh, or per, per, uh, allocated resources to the judicial department for your role. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you came in at a kind of a weird time because soon after you started the pandemic hit. But you had a lot of plans to travel the state. You had a lot of um, a lot of like really good ideas, but like eh, they weren't going to necessarily be as easy as not that it would have ever been easy, but they weren't going to be as easy as this added health crisis and budget crisis going on. So can you just tell us about some of the notable accomplishments of the past year? Sure. Um, yeah. Even though I've not been able to travel around the state uh, for the first year in this role, as I had uh, envisioned, I've been able to have uh, conversations virtually with many of the different districts around the state. And I think in some ways, uh, using technology and virtual uh, conferencing has actually made it easier for me to have conversations with people who may have otherwise, it would have taken me longer to get to some other districts or um, just easier for judges in particular to fit me into their very busy docket schedules. And so there's some positives from that. And the way that I see it is, you know, I have made um, connections and, and friends and contacts in some of these areas that now I have a person that I can follow up with and meet in person for the first time mm -hmm. um, virtual uh, it, when I visit their district. Um, actually, Aaron and I met in person for the first time only a couple weeks ago. I had never met with Aaron, even though we've been meeting with each other once a month, every month since last year. And so now I'm really excited to, you know, share physical space with people that I've had lots of great conversations with already. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but we have had lots of successes actually. Um, so as it was mentioned in the state of judiciary at address that uh, Chief Justice Boatwright gave, you know, it was really thrilling for me to have him being able to share some of the successes and the good news during what's been a really difficult year for the branch as a whole. 50% um, of the judges who were appointed in 2020 were people of color. And we have more black women on the bench today and in the past year than in the past 25 years combined. And in 2018, that really gave rise to my position being created. We had one black judge in the entire state, and now we have 11 as of today. And seven of them are Black women. And I think that's an incredible achievement in of itself. And certainly not just due to my position or the work that I've been doing. But again, I think it's just um, a culmination of a sustained effort by the entire community that's behind it. Um, and a really exciting thing that I want to highlight um, that is now public record that I can share is on Monday, 
um, Justice Marquez is going to testify before U.S. Congress oh, on wow. on judicial diversity. So I am very honored um, for us to even be able to tell the successes and what we've been working on with, you know, members of U.S. Congress and, and Washington, D.C. know who we are and what the work that we're doing. So I am very excited for wins like that. And certainly uh, successful programs like Java with Judges. Um, and I'm happy to share later on some of those specific um, wins and numbers from that program. But um, that combined with kind of the monthly conversations on applying to be a judge on the bench, as well as um, I think I've done about um, 15 community presentations in the past 12 months, virtually, of course, um, with various um, specialty bar associations and local communities and even um, college classrooms on judicial diversity. So that's been a big win. Um, and I think we do have the momentum to keep it going even after the pandemic. Yeah. So 2020, I mean, just from a pure uh, something you can measure the number of appointments, the number of black judges appointed, the number of black female judges appointed outnumbering the last 25 years. I mean, that had to put some wind in your sails, uh, even though I know the pandemic caused us all a little bit of uncertainty. That's That pro kind of progress probably really propelled you forward. So, I mean, just anything to share about the energy that that's creating, not only amongst the, the folks that are within judicial, but outside of judicial, are you starting to see um, like um, lawyers or law students or other people kind of noticing this as well? Absolutely. And I think when people see, uh, you know, judges of color and more women being appointed, people take notice. It is encouraging. And I think that does help overcome some of the um, imposter syndrome that particularly women of color feel in this in the legal profession to feel like, yes, they do have an opportunity to serve on the bench because here are some of my colleagues or my mentors, people that people look up to are taking the bench now. But I think we, then we also have the responsibility now to make sure that we are creating a workplace that really is supporting the great diverse judges that are coming on board. And so I am supporting the work of the Judicial Wellbeing Committee that Justice Marquez chairs and just making sure that we're not just talking about the diversity piece, but that equity and inclusion piece as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the work that we need to continue to do um, so that the great judges that we're bringing on board are going to find success in the long run. Yes, that's that's a great point. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it, but it, it forces the whole organization to take a look at how we do business and what we need to change and what we need to do to better um, support the workforce that 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 is changing and that 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 the new uh, the new judges that are taking the bench. So Judge Brown and Aaron, I really am excited to hear about the work you've been doing in the Court of Appeals. Um, and so do you want to talk a little bit about the idea committee? Um, and how you've worked with the Judicial Diversity and Outreach Program and maybe some of the successes that you've been able to see um, since you've, you've undergone this work. I know it's, a, it's, a, it's sometimes really difficult to see the progress also, but it sounds like you guys have really made an impact in a short period of time. Yeah, I think we have. Uh, we're really proud of the work that we're doing. I'll, I'll start maybe with kind of the overarching idea committee on the court. And then Aaron, maybe you can fill in some of the pipeline subcommittee successes since that's where you and I are focusing our energy. Um, you know, 
the idea committee and again it's um, inclusivity diversity equity and anti-racism committee is now a standing committee here on the court of appeals and it was formed in the wake of what i keep calling the social justice reckoning following the death of george floyd um, and and it really is an acknowledgement that we have work to do <laughs> as a court as judges as the the judicial system in its entirety to ensure that idea principles are implemented at all levels um, you know sort of from soup to nuts from applications to policies to um, you know inclusive language in our opinions um, and so we formed this committee and it has and it has right now it has several um, subcommittees including a high Hiring subcommittee and a policies and procedures subcommittee and a pipeline subcommittee. Um, and each of the subcommittees is really focused on um, implementing these idea principles at, at really every level of our court, making sure that our, our policies are aligning with these goals. Um, and I think, first of all, I just have to say I'm really proud of my colleagues on the court for um, so quickly acknowledging that this was um, a gap that needed to be filled internally. Um, and for sort of launching these efforts and getting these efforts underway. You know, we as judges are often constrained um, in, in the way that we can engage on these issues um, and, and the ways in which we can effectuate change. And so I'm, I'm proud of us as a court for looking in the mirror and turning ourselves, you know, looking inward and, and figuring out how within our system, within our boundaries, within the constraints that we face, um, you know, really how to, to work the system to make it better, um, to increase representation. Representation matters, like Sumi was saying. Um, and, and that's part of the work that we're doing on, on the pipeline committee in particular. Erin, you want to talk about that? Yes, I will. So the pipeline subcommittee, we have set out different goals at the beginning of the year, and we have accomplished quite a few of those goals. That includes building relationships with various diversity bars and legal organizations in our state. We have also developed relationships with both the career development offices at CU and D law schools. During that time, we worked with DU's CDO office to put on a, um, a clerkship Mythbusters event. The Mythbusters program was intended to um, encourage students to apply regardless of any of the preconceived notions of what it means to be a law clerk applicant of what the judges are actually wanting. For example, whether you need to be on law review or be a TA for your writing class, um, we were talking about how everything, these boxes that people typically think that needs to be checked to attain a certain role that those aren't just the same boundaries that judges are looking at today, that they're actually looking for different perspectives from diverse backgrounds, because it does add more perspectives in your chambers and to have, you know, a diverse thought and trying to figure out problems and how you're even approaching this a problem. Um, for example, you know, if you have a person of color who grew up in, you know, certain environments, it can be a discussion where you can kind of talk through maybe how something may appear a certain way. We have also developed relationships with law schools outside of the state, including New Mexico and Utah, and also in Texas. However, we are trying to expand our pipelines outside of the law schools in Colorado so that we can try to attract diverse applicants from different regions in the country. And we are currently in the works of trying to build relationships in a pipeline with with law schools with um, high populations of diverse students. 
Uh, we also participated in the Women in, Women in Law Day panel. We've had members of our pipeline subcommittee sit on panels um, at New Mexico Law and also Utah Law um, to speak to the students, diverse students at those schools. Um, and we worked with SUMI along with other members of the Supreme Court's diversity working group in forming the Java with Judges program. So All right. is there anything that I missed? No, I don't think so. I, you know, the pipeline subcommittee just is focused on diversifying applicants at all levels of our court. Um, and, and in the judiciary, you know, across the state, eventually we'd love to have a hand in that. And that's part of why we're working um, so closely with Sumi. And it's been such a joy to get to work with her to develop um, this, this Java with judges program, which I think we're going to probably talk about next. Yeah. So do you all find just sort of showing up with this clear intention of why you're talking to these different law students and, and individuals um, and going beyond, and I've had some other podcasts where people go, you know, we're an EEOC employer and we, are, we, you know, we're a diverse organization, but you're actually saying we want diverse applicants. We are seeking diverse applicants. And from what some of the feedback I've been getting in some of these interviews is it changes it from just using the legal language that everybody's obligated to use to really people feeling like, oh, you really do want me and you're helping me understand why that's important. And it gives them um, a little more, I guess, faith in the fact that we're not just trying to cover our legal bases. Are you, are you having any conversations with folks you're encountering after the fact saying, thank you very much. This was different than any other outreach maybe I've had um, in the past or the recent past. Yeah. Assuming you may be able to speak to that most, I think with the Java with judges program, I, we certainly have um, been focusing in the way that you suggest when we're talking to students at the law schools, when we're sitting on panels, when we're having these conversations um, and it is a different tone, right? It's not just, we welcome all applicants. Mm -hmm. it, listen, we want you diverse applicants to apply. And this is why, because you add a new and different and important voice to this conversation. And the more voices we have in this conversation, the better result we're going to reach as judges in the system in, you know, effectuating change. You know, I think you said it earlier, Bill, about, you know, having more perspectives involved, it, it improves the system. Um, and so, you know, part of our effort is breaking down those barriers between the bench and the communities who feel unheard mm -hmm. by the system um, and helping folks from diverse backgrounds really realize that a career in the judiciary, a career in law um, is for them. And that's one of the things we're doing on the pipeline subcommittee too. Now in the future, going forward, we're looking at ways we can even engage students younger than law school, right? Can we, can we talk with college kids? Can we talk with high school students and, and middle school students and even elementary school students to get them thinking about a career in law. Let us set aside the judiciary. Mm -hmm. Let's get more people of color in into the legal profession. Like that mm -hmm. is step one to diversifying our bench, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we engage students even as young as elementary school to start getting them to believe in themselves that a career in law that uh, that being on the bench is a a reality for them, right? Mm -hmm. They can 
see themselves there. They have people who are championing them, championing them and rooting for them and wanting them to be a part of this conversation. And the earlier we can get them on the pipeline, in the pipeline, mm-hmm. <laughs> the better. Yeah. Sumi, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add or Aaron, just to. So when we first started planning um, the Java with Judges program, before we even had the idea for this program, we actually went and talked to the diverse law student groups at CUNDU law schools because we really wanted to make sure that we were not operating based on any assumptions that we are making about what diverse law students need and wanted to make sure that we were really creating something that they want and and need and could benefit from. So when we spoke with them, they said, you know, it really feels like there isn't a program that's really for us specifically that, you know, it's really an opportunity for us to connect with judges. And, you know, really the idea of speaking to a judge even for me, sometimes it can be a really intimidating thought. I mean, mm-hmm. no offense to Judge Brown. She's very nice once you get to meet her. But if I saw her name on paper, I might just, you know, freeze up just thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go talk to a judge. And so we also um, heard that many of the students have not had an opportunity to have a conversation with a judge or know a judge ever before coming to law school. So. We wanted to create a a casual atmosphere where uh, law students can really engage in casual conversations with judicial officers and with the law clerk, um, but in a small group setting that's small enough that you can actually, everyone can have an opportunity to speak, but not as intimidating as a one-on-one conversation, which can be a lot of pressure sometimes, right? Even Mm -hmm. even if we say it's a casual conversation. So Mm -hmm. our sessions um, are hosted by an appellate judge, uh, a trial court judge, and a law clerk. And we host up to six students per session. So that's a maximum number. We have sometimes fewer than that, but we... Uh, see that that's actually uh, a sweet spot for everyone to get a chance to speak and to actually talk to and get to know one another in a one hour virtual setting. Mm -hmm. And even though um, pandemic has necessitated us having this program in a virtual format, it actually has been beneficial in some ways um, because it makes it really easy for judges to find a time on their docket and also judges from outside of the Denver metro area to join. Um, in the first pilot season of the program, we had judges from 11 different districts participate, which is really great. And so even though I think we yeah. are going to talk about as a committee what the format might look like down the road once it is safe for us to get together, um, I actually think that the virtual format's been really successful so far. Yeah, that's interesting because it just makes it easier. You don't have to commute in. You don't have to find a parking spot. You don't have to get to a specific part of this large building and hopefully you find the right place. So yeah, that's great that you were able to put that into place. And then maybe who knows, do you plan to have maybe follow-ups? Like, is this a one-time thing if, if somebody's part of it or can they sign up for multiples or, you know, I think the, 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 the group I was observing, it, I think there were L3s and there were also people who are getting ready to enter law school, if I recall. So you had like the full spectrum. And so they're going to obviously have a different set of uh, questions or curiosities after they get more immersed into the law. Um, it, how's that ongoing maybe follow-up looking? I'll have Aaron answer this. Okay. So... 
right now, students can sign up for as many job with judges conversations as they would like. We are in the works of trying to figure out how the follow-up would be because we have received comments that, um, you know, not only the students, but the judges would also like to hear from the students months down the road after having mm. these discussions to figure out how they're doing and um, also to potentially do some type of, um, you know, questionnaire to figure out if this job with judges session has actually benefited the students in their interactions with people in the judiciary and whether they feel more confident being able to speak with people who are judicial officers or law clerks at the court. Okay. Thanks. Anything else that, uh, that y'all want to add to maybe, um, job with judges, or if you've been part of them, just sort of like any notable without, you know, identifying individuals, but any notable sort of, things that maybe, oh, this, this is doing even more things than I expected it to. I've, I, I didn't expect this little twist and it was like a positive one, of course. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like you had an intention going in and then maybe you learn some things that it's even better than you expected. Yeah, I'll speak to that because I've hosted a, a couple of them now, I think, as have um, Aaron and Sumi's always on the line. So she gets all the uh, the inside info. Um, I will tell you that I was so blown away by how impressive the students were that got on my first Java with Judges session in particular. Um, they all came from such unique backgrounds, had such interesting life experiences and employment experiences. I was truly blown away. You know, we, we, we sort of set this up as a benefit to the diverse students who want to talk with judges, but I found myself just being so engaged and inspired mm -hmm. by the work that these students, the things that they had already accomplished and the work that they were still doing. Um, so that was a real, like great surprise for me as how much I got out of it, not just that I was giving to these students a little bit of my time, but, but that I really felt rewarded by these conversations with them. Um, and the other thing I'll say too, Bill, is we're doing, we're, we're in our second session now. And so what we're doing in the program side of things is, is really revising as we go mm -hmm. um, to, to, to improve the program, right? We did one session, we got a lot of feedback. Um, Sumi can share some of the numbers um, from that, but we had feedback on the, on the timing and the size. And um, frankly, we we learned that I know you'll be surprised to hear this, that the judges kind of sucked the air out of the room in some of the sessions uh, and maybe spent so much time talking about their resumes that there was less time to talk um, with the students about the questions that the students actually had. So in advance of our second session, we um, revamped our orientation. We asked each of the judges to attend um, an hour long orientation that is designed to introduce them to the program, as well as point out, you know, some of the challenges that diverse law students in particular may be facing that the judges may not be aware of talking about microaggressions, talking about the extra pressures of of being someone from a diverse or underrepresented background in law school, uh, really to help our judges have the right frame of mind going in. And so we revamped that training in between the first session and the second really to kind of focus on some of those things, give actual advice to the judges who are hosting these sessions about what you kind of should and shouldn't do. Don't list your resume. Let's do an icebreaker mm -hmm. instead, for example. And I think it really improved um, how organic the conversation um, developed in those sessions. Interesting. Yeah. You know, 
as you're talking and I'm listening to all of you, I am thinking um, something we do in judicial, especially in a lot of collaborative projects is we invite people to our table and, um, and, and, we, we don't understand why our table is not interesting to them. And it sounds like in a little bit of this, like you're getting that feedback, like this isn't about the benefit to the judicial branch. This is a benefit to, to and for the, the future of the legal, legal profession. And, and I was just wondering, like, does, did, is that the kind of sort of feedback that either you guys interpreted or you've got, like, if, if this is going to be useful to us, we need to see some changes. Um, Thanks for inviting us to the table, but we've actually got something here to help you think about, right? Um, I don't know uh, it, it, how that hits your ears, but I was just wondering, like, is that part of what we're learning? Or will we actually learn how to better engage um, marginalized communities through this program? Because um, it seems like sometimes we don't get representation because I don't think we take the right approaches. Yeah, and I think that um, especially when you're working on um, DEI issues, I think people see it as, oh, I well, I, I took that Harvard implicit, you know, the association test um, a year ago, and I'm, now I'm done with it, or I went to a CLE program on that, and now I understand that. But I think uh, it's really a lifelong um, learning process, and and something that you just have to continuously. Um, have a conversation about and to get updated about. And I think that was one of the things that we wanted to stress is, you know, uh, even though judges have law clerks and externs in their chambers every day, we wanted to make sure that we were um, not operating under any assumptions about what diverse law students are going through, but really hearing what law students are facing today and to engage with experts like Sarah Scott of Center for Legal Inclusiveness, who does great presentations on this topic. We engaged with her to come in and help us with our orientation and training. So, mm -hmm. um, and again, getting that feedback is a, is a critical aspect of this program um, to make sure that as, as uh, Judge Brown said earlier, that idea principles really are, um, are, are pillars of this program and continue to be as, as more seasons come. And I would like to add that the different opinions and um, feedback that we got from members of the working group itself helped a lot. Um, just having very candid conversations about, you know, our experiences and our job with judges sessions helped to change the format of how we were going to do our orientation. Um, so I think that just having really great relationships with people on our working group, in our working group, and being able to, you know, say things in a safe space, I think that that's helped us move or one has helped us work together well and to get a lot done. Um, and two, it just made working with everybody, working on this project way more enjoyable. One other question that just comes to mind as I listen to you talk and the legal profession, the legal field, there's some changes, there's legal tech, the regulation of law is changing. Um, there's some other states like Utah that have gone pretty far and changing who can even be owners and law firms. There's some conversation uh, here in Colorado right now about making some changes. So I'm also just curious um, 
may, maybe we haven't evolved to those types of conversations, but it seems like the law students might be, and you, you're, you're talking to folks from all kinds of different law schools, they may be tuned into some of these like emerging issues in the practice of law or the future of the practice of law. Um, they're even talk, talk now about changing the bar uh, and the, the approach to the bar exam. So I don't know, does any of this come up? Because I feel like you're talking to law students who are facing this shifting, changing, we know we have a lot of uh, litigants in cases 75% plus that maybe only have one attorney. Um, and I might even have that statistic wrong, but you know, is, does any of that conversation also come up that not only is the legal profession changing, but uh, who's getting in the law school and who's getting on the bench, hopefully will be changing as well. Yeah. I can't say from my own experience that, that I've had too many conversations about the topics that, that you specifically mentioned, Bill, but certainly the the change in the practice of law and the shifts, you know, we have our new DEI CLE requirement, um, which is a wonderful step in the right direction on these issues. Um, so those types of things and, and how the profession is changing is certainly, certainly topic. And I don't, I don't know, frankly, that the mm-hmm. hosts are all that well equipped to talk about it. That's true. Um, mm-hmm. so my experience from law school is starting to get real stale. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I think it's important to continue to have those conversations and that the hosts are, are open to having engaging on those topics. I can't say that I've um, talked about too many of the ones that you mentioned so far. Okay. Yeah. And I think, uh, using, um, technology to connect, you know, I don't know if we would have necessarily had Java with judges in a virtual format, if it weren't in a pandemic situation. I mean, I'm not sure that's just a guess, but, um, you know, before we would have thought, well, that's not going to work or that's not a possibility, but maybe it is possible. And I Mm -hmm. think even, um, you know, uh, technology has changed, uh, how classrooms are run and how law schools run and who gets access to that. And students could be even, uh, staying with their parents outside of Colorado and still sitting in on law school. Right. And Mm -hmm. so does that mean that maybe students from remote regions of Colorado can have access to law school down the road? I mean, who knows, you know, I think the possibilities are, are endless, but I do think that, um, especially in 2020, um, the, some of the things that, sorry, in 2020, I think pandemic has necessitated creativity in how we approach things and having to adapt to not being able to be in person. And I, and I hope there are some changes from that, that are being, are going to be implemented into a permanent form. You know, when I looked at the name of your, your committee, it's the inclusivity, diversity, equity, and anti-racism. Uh, committee. And Aaron, you were mentioning like a holding space for people to have honest conversations. But what I noticed in 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 the acronym you use, you use anti-racism. And sometimes I think over the course of the past year, we've heard a lot of EDI or DEI, but the anti-racism piece kind of doesn't always get included. And I think that's a really important aspect. And I'm just curious about why did the Court of Appeals specifically use anti-racism in the name of the committee? And then what are some of the um, some of the activities or uh, projected activities that that we need to be thinking about, not only at the Court of Appeals, but at the judicial branch and across the legal field, um, when we talk about anti-racism, because I, I, I think um, all of these words are important, but this is when I feel like we need to become more comfortable talking about and talking about anti-racism, at anti-blackness, and some of the things that maybe 
make people uncomfortable, but we need to be a little uncomfortable. I think that's maybe where the opening for change is. So I'd like to hear a little more about that. Take the first stab at it. (laughs) Well, um, that name, well, including anti-racism to the idea committee, that was something that, you know, members of the court ought to have added to it. Um, I think it was really important for people to not lose sight of the racism aspect of it. And given that it is so embedded into our criminal justice system, I mean, we have systemic racism and we just wanted to make sure that it's on people's radar and that it is one of the main, you know, focuses of this committee and to improve it. And I mean, for our committee alone to improve diversity, um, you know, we, we want to increase, you know, diversity of the applicants and it's not just race, right. But the fact that, you know, for example, you know, anti-blackness and how, you know, black people have essentially, you know, started on the bottom and stayed at the bottom. That's something that we need to change. And the fact that, you know, it is uncomfortable, but making people, you know, force and to have those uncomfortable conversations, you know, I think that that has moved a lot of, I mean, internally having those tough, tough conversations with people within the court. I think that is, you know, making a difference in one, having a safe space at the court for people to freely speak and two, to, I mean, make sure that our judiciary, that we're trying to be the best that we can be and to hold ourselves accountable of, you know, the wrongs that have been done and trying to do the best that we can to right them. I'll just add that um, it was important for the word anti-racism to be included in that in the committee title um, for the reasons that Aaron just said. Also, because it there shouldn't be a debate any longer about there being uh, racism in the judicial system systemically. I mean, you can (laughs) look at seminal United States Supreme court decisions, um, and, and just the plain language of those decisions. It's, it's very apparent, um, that the judicial system in our country has included racism. That doesn't mean that the judges on my court are racist. I don't think there's a single one of them, right? Uh, We are all working very hard um, against that principle, but we have to acknowledge that it exists in the system in order to move forward and improve the system. We can't pretend that it didn't exist and just say, well, I'm not racist because that's not enough, right? We have to actively work against it and, and to try to write uh, some of that, to fix some of that. Um, and so our court on the, on the inside, you know, it's not necessarily the work of the, the pipeline subcommittee, which is what Aaron and I co-chair, but the greater idea committee, um, has, for example, done things like a town hall meetings with the entire court, uh, law clerks, staff attorneys, clerk's office judges, um, to talk about some of these issues. We recently hosted, um, a training called foundations and equity, a workshop, uh, facilitated workshop training with the Gemini group to come in and and have some of those really tough conversations, really uncomfortable conversations. Um, And part of it's training and part of it's small group discussion, but it really is trying to get us all engaged and acknowledging um, what's been happening in our system for hundreds of years. Um, And, you know, you, you sort of said it, Bill, discomfort is the key to meaningful change. 
if we are not uncomfortable, we are not moving forward, right? We have to, to work. You have to be okay being uncomfortable. I don't always say the right thing. I come into these Java with judges sessions and sometimes I'm scared to death. I'm going to step on somebody's toes or, or call someone the wrong pronoun or use a wrong word. And, um, and that can paralyze you from engaging in that really tough work if you let it. Um, but if we all lead with vulnerability and open hearts and open minds into this really important and incredible work, then maybe we can, can finally effectuate some change. And so internally, our court is focused on the anti-racism piece and, and what we can do again, within the bounds of, you know, our abilities and, and, you know, it'll present in a case, sometimes you can't fix it. Um, and that may be because it's a preservation issue or a standard of review issue or, um, you know, whatever it is that we're looking at, it doesn't involve the race piece. Um, and so we are so limited in the ways that we can actually effectuate change. But little by little by little, if we acknowledge that it exists, little by little by little, we can fix it. And I, like Judge Brown said, it's not just the pipeline subcommittee that's doing this work. You know, there's other committees that are having, you know, book conversations and to, you know, learn about different perspectives there and to discuss those different views. So, I think that everybody who's on the idea committee, you know, is doing their best to affect as much change as they can while they're yeah. on the court. If, for example, if they're a law clerk or if they're here long term, long term, you know, the best that they they just contributing as much as they can to this cause, which. Yeah. Is all we can ask for. Yeah, I do think having the conversation little by little is important. Right. And I and I'm hoping that these types of uh, initiatives uh because I, I, you know, I think a lot of us have been looking at, at at these issues and thinking about them maybe differently than we were before the past year with the murder of George Floyd and and the riots and the and the civil unrest and and the response to uh, the systemic racism and and the you know we've had words like disproportionality or overrepresentation for a long time. I don't think these are new concepts for most of us. Um, and so we're having these difficult conversations, being open-hearted, having the ability to take correction. And I think that's a real starting point. And hopefully that leads to right the sharing of resources and power, because ultimately it seems like if you diversify the bench and you diversify the administration of courts and you diversify the practice of law, hopefully um, you're going to also start to share power and resources differently. And so, I mean, I'm. I'm sure that's somewhere in the in in the in the long term hopes is that we actually shift the way we do business in a major way. Um, and so I just take my hats off to the work that you're doing, because I know that uh, I'm glad to hear everybody was unanimous and, and engaging in this work. But it is it is the long haul. Right. It's it's a long term commitment. It's not just a response to an event. It is. We are committed to doing this. Hopefully this committee Maybe one day won't need to exist, but it should be here 20 years from now. And I'm proud to say that so far, I mean, we have done some of the work that we sought out to. We mm -hmm. had received emails from students who have participated in the program who told us that they have attained a clerkship um, with the judge that they connected with a judge they connected with during their session. So, oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm interviewing law clerks right now. And two of two of the folks that I am interviewing were in job Java with judges sessions with me. So. 
Yeah, and it looks like Java with Judges doesn't take a lot of money, right, Sumi? So this is such a, it's, you're getting a huge return on this investment. It, it's time, obviously time is important, but wow, that's great. You're already interviewing law clerk applicants and already connecting them to these clerkships, which what I took away from is a, a pursuing a clerkship could be a scary thing, especially if you don't know the secret sauce, not necessarily that there is secret sauce, but like they get a little insight into like the best strategies. Yeah. I think the only money we ever really wanted was some money to make cute mugs that say Java with judges that we could uh -huh. give to everyone who participates. That was like part of our initial dream. Um, so if I could just make a plug to find that fund somewhere in SEO budget, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a, it's like a marketing to tool as well. Like, uh, you know, they're, they're walking around the classroom if they still go to actual classrooms or is it all online now, um, with their mug and then what is Java for judges? Oh, you need to check it out. Um, well, we're getting up on an hour um, and everybody sort of indicated we're not on a hard stop. So I wanted to transition into the takeaways for taking action, but I also want to make sure I didn't like, um, I want to make sure I, I, if I failed to leave the space for something that you really wanted to say right now, that isn't necessarily in your three takeaways or one big takeaway for taking action. If you have one um, let's, let's delve into that right now. And then, and then we'll start to wrap it up. The only thing I would add is that, you know, the, the three of us are here talking with you about the Java with Judges program. We have we have a whole host of other folks who have worked with us on this program, folks who are at the Supreme Court, folks who are on my court. Um, and the same is true, as, as Aaron was saying, on the IDEA committee at the Court of Appeals. There's a veritable army of folks who are all walking arm in arm toward the right goal right now. And um, I don't want it to be missed that there are many, many others who have contributed to these causes and, and will continue to do so. Thank you for that. Yeah. Can we actually give a specific shout out? I'm going to try to find a list of everybody who's in our Java planning group. Cause that would yeah. be cool. I'm going to try to find it. Um, yeah, definitely. One second. Cause everyone has worked so hard on this. Okay. And to tag along with that, I just want to give a special shout out to Matthew Simonson, Amber Palomilio, um, Megan Berry, and Brittany Garza, who is also part of our Java with Judges planning group. All right. Kudos to all of you, and thank you for doing this. Uh, now we will get into takeaways for taking action. I asked folks if they have three, but there's three of you. Maybe you all want to give one. Maybe you want to give seven. Honestly, uh, I'm just so appreciative that you took the time out of your day to talk to me. So let's let's get into some takeaways for taking action. Why don't you go first, Sumi? Sure. I think um, one takeaway from our conversation today that I just want to share is you know, don't make assumptions and listen. And, and, and I think another thing is just to keep and to stay in the conversations and keep having conversations. Um, I think without those things, I think uh, Java with judges or any program that we create wouldn't have been had the success that we've had. So that's my takeaway for today. All right. And Aaron, how about you? My key takeaway would be that, um, be taking, you know, being creative in the programs that you have and keeping in mind the people that you are trying to create the program for. Um, and like Sumi said, listening to them um, really can have a true impact in what you are trying to accomplish. 
And, you know, we've already seen results from the programming and it was just taking that time, the additional time to talk with the students and to get their, you know, perspectives and opinions on certain programmings that I think really aided to the success of this program. All right. And Judge Brown, how about you? I think and those were those were some of my takeaways too. <laughs> I, um, I definitely echo uh, what Aaron and Sumi said. The other thing I think I'd like to say is, you know, Java with Judges is is kind of a micro mentoring opportunity, right? It takes very little time overall, but it's um, it is a bit of mentoring. And so, I guess my takeaway from that is that you really can make a major impact with micro mentoring. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. So now it's time to get to know the guests. And I know each of you gave us a little background, but I've got some preset questions I ask everybody. And so I'll start with you, Judge Brown. Tell me something that surprised you about this podcast today. I continue to be surprised that every time I hear the stat about the number of Black judges that have been put on the bench in the last year and a half compared to the last 25 years that I get chills every single time. And it still surprises me. So I mean, what surprised you about your second appearance on the podcast? Well, that you can have a great podcast episode with three guests on it, you know, that it doesn't, it works really well. And I am just so thrilled that Aaron and judge Brown agree to share the space with me today. Um, again, I, I think this program in so many ways has, has also propelled my work when, when things were really difficult um, in the past year and, and professionally, personally. And so uh, we got to celebrate the, the wins, you know, and celebrate the good things that are happening. And again, I think judicial especially could use uh, good news and celebrate, uh, you know, all the hard work that is being done behind the scenes right now. All right. And Aaron, how about you? I would say how technology can really further the communications with people. And I know that, you know, generally having a screen can, you know, you know, arise some barriers and to, you know, make it a little bit difficult to make those connections. But I think that as long as we are invested in these conversations, regardless of whether it's remote and you're using technology, people can still connect and you know, um, build relationships that are going to be lasting longer than just one conversation. Absolutely. All right. So Aaron, we'll start with you. Question number two is what is your favorite thing or place in Colorado? My family. Okay. That's a simply straightforward answer. How about you, Judge Brown? Man, I was going to say that too, but now I sound unoriginal. Um, so my second favorite thing in Colorado, aside from my family, is uh, hiking in the mountains. Okay. I concur with that. And Sumi Lee, how about you? I moved during the pandemic and into a new house, and I really love spending time in the garden and pulling the many weeds that are out there. Yeah, because of all the rain this, this, this spring and summer, how the weeds are out of control. All right, Sumi, where is somewhere in the world you dream of visiting one day? Oh, my gosh. I think the, I think the pandemic has redefined what travel means to each of our lives. I will never take any of travel for granted ever again. Um, I think I really would just like to go anywhere outside the country because there's so many travel restrictions right now. Yeah. So, um, I was supposed to uh, honeymoon in Antigua and still have yet to be able to do that. So I would like to just go there first. I'll say Okay, Antigua. fair enough. How about you, Judge Brown? 
I have such wanderlust too, man. It's a real thing. Um, I think top of my list is Italy. I've never All been right. to Italy. All right. Any, any particular part of the country or just anywhere? I mean, so many of them, Rome, Florence, yeah. Venice, Cinque Terre, Lake Como, yeah. maybe George Clooney will let me into his house. Yeah. I knocked okay. <laughs> and Aaron Scott, how about you? Top of my list would be New Zealand. And Ooh, I really yeah. wanted to go there during my month off, but um, half they the won't let you in, will they? I would be in quarantine for about 14 <laughs> days and oh. I don't know if that would be super fun. Yeah. So you're going to have to put that one on pause. Yeah, New Zealand. Haven't been there, but yeah, it's, it's it looks magical. Hopefully, we'll all get to make it there one day. All right, Aaron. What about what is your perfect meal? My perfect meal would be stuffed sopapillas that my mom makes. Ooh, taste D. All right, and how about you, Judge Brown? Tacos and tacos, any kind of tacos. They're my okay. favorite. There, there isn't even a favorite like taco. I feel like I go in phases. Lately, it's shrimp tacos. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And Sumi, how about you? Um, so I had this yesterday and I realized it's like the perfect meal to have on a hot day. Uh, there's a cold uh, noodle dish in Korean cooking that's uh, spicy. It's cold noodles. You top it off with um, any kind of meat you want and some cucumbers for crunch, any greens you want to add. And it's like the perfect summer meal. Mm, That sounds great. All right. Final question. Here's the toughest one of the day. I swear. (laughs) Aaron, what is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? I believed that you could grow a third eye in your forehead if you stared into the microwave while your food was cooking. Oh, I, I wonder. I wonder where that came from. I, I, was it a practical joke or something? That is what my mom told me to not look at the microwave anymore. You know, as I was impatient to eat. So yeah. Did you ever warn anybody, your friends or other family members, of this? And and did they look at you like with their third eye? Uh, I think that I told my brother that, and he didn't actually correct me at all. You know, so I definitely believed that at that point. Okay. <laughs> How about you, Judge Brown? What is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? That sugar makes kids hyper. <laughs> it's just my kid. It's not- <laughs> there's, there's no truth to this sugar story. And it doesn't ruin your appetite, right? It just makes you want to eat more. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know about that part. <laughs> All right. And Sumi, what is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? Yeah, I love the I love this theme because I think last year I gave you kind of a serious answer. So I'm going to go along the theme of today and say um, when I was young, my mom told me that the only people who could like snap their gum are people who have the silver filling in their teeth. Okay, she had like a silver capped filling like back in the old days. And she said only people who have the silver capped teeth can pop their gum because she didn't want me to do it. Uh-huh. So I actually believe that well into my adulthood. I think I was like already a lawyer or something. And then <laughs> in the past 10 years, did I realize that's not really true? Oh, wow. You didn't try to get like the silver filling so that you could crack your gum, right? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I just want to say again to each of you, thank you so much for your time today. And this was a fun podcast and a lot of really good information. And Aaron, did you have your hand up? I, I just, 
Well, this was going to be one of those edits that we add in because okay. I really thought of something that I learned of today. I learned that Judge Brown is, a, you know, uh, interviewing two people from her job with judges sessions. And I didn't know that. Yeah, that was a great one. And that is like, I think the perfect way to end this podcast with just the success of this program and uh, to encourage everybody out there, you know, engaging people, listening to people, uh, putting the effort forth. Um, you don't have to wait a decade for the results. Uh, it, it looks like you guys are really seeing a lot of good outcomes from the work you're doing. So thank you uh, for the work you're doing. And, and thank you on behalf of everybody in the branch who's trying to make things better when it comes to equity, inclusion, diversity, and anti-racism. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab about. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action.